0: Welcome to Deal of the Week, Bloomberg's podcast on the world of mergers and acquisitions and deal making. I'm your host, Alex Sherman. Each week on the podcast, we try to explore M and A from a new angle. And this week, we're talking sports. Yes, sports franchises. Sal Galatioto runs his own advisory business, working with billionaires and groups of investors to acquire professional sports teams. Uh, he's worked with some of the biggest. Deals in all of sports, really, uh, including the Ricketts family buying the Chicago Cubs and selling the Charlotte Bobcats to none other than Michael Jordan. He's got some great stories. We'll ask him what it's like working side-by-side with George Steinbrenner and some other well-known sports owners. That in just a few minutes. But first, it's time for our weekly segment, What's the Big Deal? And this week, we're talking about a deal that could be in the works. Verizon is interested in buying Yahoo and potentially combining it with AOL. And joining us now to discuss is Bloomberg technology reporter Brian Womack, who covers Yahoo. He joins us from San Francisco. Hey, Brian. How you doing? So, good. Uh, thanks for asking. So, Yahoo, a fallen giant in the technology world. <laughs> uh, and now they're exploring selling themselves. So, look, for, for, for listeners that aren't all that familiar with what's going on with Yahoo, what exactly has happened with this company over the past few years under CEO Marissa Meyer?
1: Yeah, it's a great question because I think a lot of people still sort of think of Yahoo as this amazing tech titan out here in the valley, but it is a shadow of its former self. I mean, this is a company that uh, is a fraction of the size of Google and now even Facebook. But it's a bit under the leadership of um, Marissa Meyer, uh, formerly of Google, and she's been trying to turn things around and, uh, you know, hiring a lot of people, making some acquisitions, trying to get this company back to growth. Um, It hasn't worked out. It's been flat. To little to declining growth, and and uh, meanwhile, there's this massive stake in, in Alibaba, the the, the big uh, Chinese commerce company, and that that's created all kinds of tax headaches for her. So she's been trying to navigate this. She kind of gets sort of mixed reviews, but uh, it's been a tough road to hoe. So let's
0: let's get into this a little bit. So Yahoo has this weird structure right now. So you mentioned it owns a stake in Alibaba. It also owns a stake. In Yahoo Japan, which is actually a really big deal uh, in Japan, if if you yeah. didn't know that, uh, and, and these stakes uh, actually dwarf the size of the company's actual <laughs> business, right?
1: Exactly. That's that's what the amazing part. Uh, uh, Yahoo has a, is you know, market value that's, that's quite high, bigger than Twitter's and a few others, and but yet all that's tied up in, in Alibaba and in Yahoo Japan, and and and, and by some measures. The core business, you know, the, the mail, the, the homepage that everybody goes to, that's worth, like, basically zero or a little more than that based on the stock price. So this is a company that's sort of – some people call it almost like a hedge fund. You have, like, a, a bunch of different assets you're looking at, and uh, the core operations is just one of them. So
0: maybe you can help me uh, understand this, Brian. So Yahoo's market cap is about $25 billion. If, if you deduct uh, those two stakes in Alibaba and Yahoo Japan, as you mentioned, the core business is basically valued at zero. And yet, if they sell this business to, like, let's say, Verizon, it will probably come with a price tag of several billion dollars. So that would be, to me, an obvious reason why you would sell. In other words, here's money – the market is valuing this at zero. The market, the the, the private market, uh, i.e., a seller, values it at billions of dollars more than this. Is that rational thinking, or is there some reason why Yahoo wouldn't want to do that?
1: Yeah, I know there's there's some mixed mixed sort of uh, takes on this, but I but you, you're bringing up a very a very strong argument here, and, and I, I think some people close to Yahoo might say, "Hey, look, yeah, 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 yeah. They, you know, right now our stock doesn't make sense based on what we have inside the company. This, we're doing better, so hey, just give us some time, give us some time, and, and we'll be fine. We'll, we'll get this we'll get this stock price right, and all the the amazing value that is in the core operations will be realized. Um, and, and there is this this whole thing around back to the stakes, just real quick, there's this massive tax issues around it. And and so there's just sort of a lot of cynicism and worry. So while the core business doesn't get a lot of value, the a lot of this just has to do with concerns about how many, much taxes the company would have to pay when everything gets broken up, if it does.
0: Gotcha. So before we sort of walk through that process, let's start with Verizon buying the core business. Why does yeah. Verizon have interest in buying this?
1: It's, it's it's really interesting because until they bought you know AOL, no one really thought of them as as sort of being a a shopper in this industry. But with while AOL had some nice ad tech and and a few users, Yahoo is is really the you know the top brass of the web portals um, that that legacy business of the 90s. And they still boast more than a billion users. They have some of the most popular properties out there you get you know you have yahoo finance you have yahoo sports you have mail so verizon would get sort of this huge footprint on the web that it doesn't really have right now and sort of expand beyond just being the basic pipes that deliver all those things to us
0: is there some synergy between verizon's business and owning web content
1: i guess you could argue that that looks what you know users are using Verizon right now. You know, you look at, you know, at your phone, many of the phones that people are using, or even in their homes, they're using Verizon to get all this content. So why not just have some of that content? Why not just have some of those tools that users are using? So there isn't, it isn't like crazy to think that this is, a you know, a next logical step for a company like Verizon.
0: All right, so let's say Yahoo does this and they do sell to Verizon. And by the way, we've also reported that there are some private equity firms like Bain and TPG uh, that are also potentially interested in buying Yahoo. So yeah. if, if, a, if a deal does get done, it's possible it could go to one of those two buyers. But let's say a deal gets done. So then Yahoo is left with these stakes in Yahoo Japan and Alibaba. Then what happens? <laughs>
1: And that's yeah. I was just talking to somebody about this. You know, it, there's a lot of different scenarios. Um, potentially, what could happen with Alibaba, which is the the important stake—that's the one worth uh, more than 20 billion right now. Um, it could it would remain part of technically the Yahoo Inc, which becomes sort of a shell company. And then maybe the hope would be that later on Alibaba itself would come in and buy some of those shares, and not much of a tax hit there. Uh, Yahoo Japan might or might not stay as part of that. It might. Come with the core, get separated somehow. There's a lot of different scenarios. Uh, You know, investment bankers around the world probably have you know 500 different spreadsheets on all the different options. But all of it's going toward how do we keep the tax rates low? How do we make investors you know get every last penny that they can out of these uh, holdings?
0: What's fascinating to me about this is that uh, because the market seemingly only values these stakes and is valuing the business. At zero, at this stage, it's very possible that a year or two from now, Yahoo, what everyone that grew up in the 90s certainly knew, Yahoo, as you mentioned, one of mm-hmm. the most formidable web players out there, could be a holding company, a $25 billion plus holding company <laughs> for two Asian company stakes. I mean, it's just, it, it, it sort of boggles my mind that that's what Yahoo
1: could hey. be. It, it is amazing, you know, and, and this happens in every industry. But Yahoo is sort of a, a really a great example of that. Is, is if you don't change with the times, if you don't invest at the right points, you're going to end up as just a no pun intended shell of a company. You know, the, the you know you look at uh, you know IBM is a shadow of its former self in some ways, and many other tech companies, and Yahoo got beat by Google, and then it got beat by Facebook and many others, and it just hasn't ever been able to recover from some of those body blows that it took after it was raining in the 90s.
0: Well, we'll have to see how this one plays out, but uh, keep following Bloomberg's uh, very good coverage of what's going on with this. And and the most recent development, which you can see on Bloomberg.com that Brian reported, was that AOL CEO Tim Armstrong, which is now a part of Verizon, is sort of leading the charge on this to potentially take in yahoo and it's possible that tim armstrong would run a combined aol yahoo so we'll, we'll we'll monitor this as we go brian womack bloomberg technology reporter who covers yahoo for us thanks for joining us brian thank you our guest this week has been helping millionaires and billionaires buy and sell sports teams for almost two decades First at a subsidiary at Societe Generale and then at Lehman Brothers and then forming his own advisory firm in 2005. Bloomberg Businessweek called him the king of sports M&A. Sal Galatioto joins us in studio. Hi, Sal. Hi, how are you? Good, good. Thank you for doing this. Uh, My pleasure. So look, uh, I think the the sort of behind the scenes of how sports teams are bought and sold is not all that known to, to most people. So maybe just to start, sort of explain to us what exactly is your job and how did you get started doing this?
2: Well, I got started doing it purely by accident. I uh, took over the East Coast region at Société Générale. I looked at our book of business and our return on assets, and it, was, it wasn't was very stellar. Uh, and I looked for businesses that were underbanked to get into, looked at about eight or nine businesses. And at that time, this is 20 years ago, sports franchises were small businesses, right? There were... There was a lot of need for banking. There weren't very many banks that actually did this. Um, And so we started small as a lender and quickly built up a a very substantial practice.
0: Take us through the job, sort of. In other words, okay, so X billionaire decides he wants to buy or sell a sports team. They hire you, and then you do what?
2: Well, okay, several things happen, right? They, They call, we discuss why they want to sell. Do they want to sell the whole thing? Do they want to sell limited partnership stakes in it? Will they give up control? And then we have to figure out what the thing is worth, right? Well, we, we give them an analysis of what we believe the market value of that specific franchise is at that time, okay? Once we agree that that owner wants to go forward, We have a very robust database of prospective buyers. People call us all the time and say, I want to buy X.
0: And these are primarily extremely wealthy
2: individuals? Uh, Yes. (laughs) Very, very wealthy individuals. But as the the price of these things, the asset value has grown, uh, now it's groups of individuals. But it's always one lead investor who's going to be the general partner. And so they come to us, and we have this database. So when we get a mandate to sell something, we'll put together an offering memorandum. Uh, We'll do a lot of research on the team, put the financials together, league information, market information, you name it. Um, Demographics. Each city, demographics are very important if you want to buy a professional sports franchise. More so in some leagues than in others. The NFL, 72% of your revenues come from national media and, and other shared revenues. So it doesn't really matter as much what city you're in. But in the other leagues, it matters very much. Um, so we'll put together a, a, an offering memorandum. We'll get prospective investors to uh, sign uh, NDAs, non-disclosure agreements. We'll send it out. We will help them through the analysis. They all hire their own financial advisors, usually. Um, And these
0: are the big banks we're talking about, Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley, that type of That's right. Uh,
2: That's who these people generally hire. And then we'll run an auction. And uh, in my experience, we've always had very robust auctions, sometimes with as many as 12 prospective bidders, sometimes with as few as three or four, uh, depending on the asset, its desirability, and, of course, what's happening in the general economy.
0: So the, the deal, I think, that sort of put you on the map was back in 1999 when you worked with Daniel Snyder to buy the Redskins. Is that fair?
2: That's right. Yeah, yeah we were we were mostly a lender before that. But then we worked with Dan. We came up with a, a very interesting financial structure, financing structure, uh, that allowed Dan to borrow more than most of his competitors. It was the first sports deal that was ever rated by the rating agencies. Uh, And it was rated investment grade. Uh, We underwrote it. We syndicated it. And at that time, that transaction was $800 million, which I believe was the highest price ever paid for a professional sports franchise. And, you know, a lot of people criticized the deal. They said he overpaid. Well, obviously, he didn't. The team's enormously profitable. And I shudder to think what the Redskins would go for if they were on the market today.
0: Were you at Lehman Brothers at this point? Or was no, we just...
2: did that deal at Sock, uh, at Sock, Sock Gen. Gen. We did that deal at Sock Gen, we grew the business at Sock Gen, and then we left in 2001 and joined Lehman Brothers.
0: And so that deal was ninety nine, and that was I, that was the largest sale price for an NFL team at the time, of yes. all time, at, at $800 million. What million. I'm curious— I mean, Daniel Snyder is known certainly by sports fans as someone who can be meddlesome a little bit with the Redskins. He's been very anti-changing the name on the Redskins, which mm-hmm. has sort of drawn some heat. What was your experience working with him like?
2: I, uh, I thought Dan was brilliant. Uh, Dan is really smart. He's dynamic. He was very focused. This is the one team he wanted to buy. He had been a fan of the Redskins since he was a little kid. Um, there was a lot, of, uh, a lot of tension in the bidding process obviously, but he... Be,
0: because of what reason?
2: Well, because there was a lot of competition. A lot of people wanted the Redskins. NFL teams rarely come on the market, and when they do, um, you know, look, it's hard not to be successful if you own an NFL team. I mean, I guess you can lose money, but you really have to
0: try at it. So then, moving forward... I mean you've you've done a whole bunch of different deals. One I know is you worked with the Ricketts family to buy the Cubs. That was just a f- few years ago now, I suppose. Yeah. Um th- they have that family has completely turned around the franchise since its ownership. Of course they brought in Theo Epstein to run the team, and now the Cubs look like they are a legitimate World Series contender again. And of course the Cubs have so much, you know, baggage, I want to say, <laughs> because of their history of not winning. What was that sales process like? Uh,
2: That was one of the toughest deals I ever did. The Ricketts came to us. uh, We were on the buy side. And a couple of other buyer groups approached us as well. Uh, And, you know, you have to make an evaluation. Who do you want to represent? And I knew from the first meeting they were the ones I wanted to represent. Why? They, They loved the Cubs. That was the only team they wanted to buy. They were committed to buying it, which gives you A huge advantage to people who say, well, I'm looking at it, but I might buy something else. They had the financial resources to do it. I thought they were really smart. Um, I think they had a vision for what they want to do with the team. I thought they were eminently approvable. And so we worked with them. And you have to remember the time period when this happened. First the banking system was seemed like was on the verge of collapse. Right. Right. Uh so this was two
0: thousand and nine? Yeah. Yeah.
2: So Uh you had Bear Stearns and then Lehman Brothers and then in the middle of the transaction when we negotiated the Tribune companies filed for bankruptcy. They owned the Cubs. Right. So then we had to figure out a financing structure, get banks to come in, and banks were very reluctant. We actually closed out the deal by putting fifty million of our own capital into the deal. So GSP stepped up. We, my firm stepped up with $50 million to close out the bank deal. We successfully syndicated it. We had to take the Cubs to a prepackaged bankruptcy to distance it from all the potential liabilities the Tribune Company had. I mean, it was a very complicated transaction. It took almost two years to complete. But um, I think we got the right people owning the team. And as you said, they've done a magnificent job turning around the franchise.
0: What was your relationship like with an, another very well-known baseball owner, George Steinbrenner?
2: I love George. Uh, I uh, We did a bunch of different transactions for, for the Yankees. We are major lenders to Yankee Global Enterprises right now and to Legends Hospitality, which is a joint venture they have with the Cowboys. Oh, my God. We helped them buy the Devils, sell the Devils, buy the Nets, sell the Nets formed the Yes Network. Uh, we provided uh, the seed money, the debt side, uh, for the Yes Network formation. George was a brilliant businessman. He, he saw the value of the Yankee brand. And remember, when he bought that team in 1973, it was really downtrodden. Um, you know, it was in, a, in a, an old building in a neighborhood people didn't want to go to, supposedly. The team hadn't played very well. They were not, even, not only not the number one baseball team, they weren't even the number one baseball team in New York. The Mets had been much more successful in 69 and 73, and George saw the value of the brand. He saw the value of the New York market. He, understood, he was one of the first to understand free agency and how you could use free agency to rebuild a, a brand, and he did a magnificent job. And, and look, he paid $10 million for the Yankees, and I don't even know what they're worth today.
0: Many billions of dollars.
2: Many billions of dollars, and you would have bidders lined up from here to the Empire State Building with open checkbooks wanting to buy it. So,
0: look, I think a lot of people maybe know George Steinbrenner because of Larry David's impersonation (laughs) on him on Seinfeld. There's got to be one good George Steinbrenner story that maybe speaks to his actual personality.
2: George was tough, but George was fair. I mean, George demanded a high level of performance. He always did. And so you knew where you stood with George. That's why I love George. George would tell you what he thought. During the Nets sale, I remember, uh, you know, we purchased the Nets. We sold it for a a large profit for George. They also took the content so they could form the Yes Network because the Nets gave them winter content and the Yankees gave them summer content. And George was on me all the time during the sale process. He wanted to make sure that we were out there working, you know, pounding the pavement, making sure we we pushed the price as far as we could, and we did. We got a tremendous price for the team. The team had never made money in its history. I'm not sure the Nets have made money till today.
0: And when you say he was pushing you, I mean is he sort of lunatic screaming at you? Or no. is it no? All
2: right. No, just you knew that he was watching what you were doing. And look, he's got great people too that work for him, people like Randy Levine and and others. Uh, lantros they were really smart people and motivated and focused and and I'm also biased because I'm a lifelong Yankee fan, so to me it was a dream. I mean to work with George and Hal Steinbrenner now, oh my God, I mean I'm a kid that grew up in you know the busher section of brook
0: so w- one more I want to talk to you about because it's on the opposite coast, but you were involved with the Golden State Warriors sale, yes. potentially like the Cubs, another franchise that had a shockingly quick transition from downtrodden to top of the sports world in just a few years. And you'd have, I have to imagine some of that has to do with the ownership group.
2: <laughs> no doubt. Uh, that was an incredible transaction. We were on the sell side. We represented Chris Cohan, sold the team. And Chris is a wonderful guy, but the, the team had made the playoffs once in the 17 years he owned the team. And so Chris finally decided to put it on the market after about talking to me for about two years. We held an auction. Uh, it was a frothy auction. We had 12 bidders, that team. We got the highest price ever for an NBA team at that time $450 million, uh, which was a great price. But the finalist two bidders were Joe Lacob and, and his group. Who won? And uh, who won? Yep. Right. And I I got dumped on from Great Heights uh, for selling it to him. Who was the other group? Uh, It was Larry Ellison. Larry Ellison, And everybody thought that Ellison would come in, he'd spend all this money, and there were two things. One, he wasn't the high bidder, and you sell it to the high bidder. But two, Peter Gruber and and Joe Lacob, they had a vision for this team, and I really felt that they were going to be great owners. And I went on the air in the San Francisco Bay Area and told everybody that they were going to turn this franchise around. They had a vision. They were people who were focused, and they really understood what needed to be done. And I got poo-pooed, and oh, my God.
0: I remember when the Golden State Warriors booed him on the floor during Chris Mullins. Right.
2: People wanted Ellison to win, but they didn't understand that Joe had a plan. Joe got it. And you know what? I'm still waiting for somebody from the San Francisco Bay Area to get back to me and say, you know what, Sal, you were right. These guys are the right owners because, no offense, but who's better owners than these, these guys? I mean, give me a break. They've turned the team from a, a laughingstock into a powerhouse.
0: It's pretty amazing because what's happening in San Francisco, of course, is that the 49ers ownership has sort of gone the other way now, where, where, where people in San Francisco sort of feel like that ownership group has ruined the team because of what happened with Jim Harbaugh and so forth.
2: Well, I mean, look. I don't want to comment on, on what they're doing in terms of, uh, of how they run the, the 49ers, but you could tell how good ownership makes a big difference, right? I mean, look at what George Steinbrenner did with the Yankees. Look what's happened with the Golden State Warriors. Look at what's happened with the Cubs. I mean, good ownership, look, first-class people hire first-class people, and that really ripples through the organization. And that focus to win. Look, I can walk into a building— And I can tell you within the first 20 minutes of sitting down with an owner whether or not that's a winning franchise for the long term or not.
0: And what is it that you're looking for? What are the qualities? Uh,
2: If somebody's really focused on the team, if somebody cares about the fans, if somebody really wants to win. And look, the difference between winning and losing in almost everything is 5% right? It's that incremental 5%. If you're willing to do 5% more than your competitors, you have a better chance to win. And you could just read it in people. You can walk into an organization, you can say, okay, today, they're not doing great. But I can see they have potential to do so much better because they demand so much of their people. And when they do, they generally get results.
0: So let's talk about investing in a sports team from a financial perspective. So obviously, the beginning of, of 2016, we've seen a lot of of volatility in the equity market stocks are down significantly mm-hmm. and yet i look at these sports franchises i mean we saw it with donald sterling having to sell the clippers and he sort of stumbled into this two billion dollar <laughs> deal where he's selling the clippers not exactly a marquee nba franchise so you figure what are the marquee franchises worth if he's getting that type of price tag uh w- what makes these sports teams such amazingly seemingly really good assets to own
2: well look first of all they're not correlated to the market right So if you have volatile markets, this is a great place to be. Two, media content value. Media content value has been going up and up and up. And as technology continues to improve and people can record their favorite television shows and watch them anytime they want and edit out every commercial, guess what? There's very little content that people are watching live. And that live content has a tremendous value to advertisers, right? Look at the ratings for something like the Super Bowl. Look at what they get for a 30-second spot right? So they're non-correlated assets. They're really media properties more than anything else. They, they reach the type of viewers that advertisers want. And you get more and more investment from not just domestically, but internationally. At this point, I'm, I'm getting a lot of people from East Asia who are calling me potentially to, you know, invest in these, in these franchises. Um, I can't talk about what deal, but I'm currently representing an East Asian group that's looking to buy a European soccer team, a major European soccer team. Um, And so I think globally, people are beginning to get it, that sports assets have real value, aren't correlated to the market, and are really resistant. Nothing is totally resistant to recession, but are more resistant to recession than other asset classes.
0: And because of that, it seems like if you look at the current large professional sports teams market it's pretty dry, meaning that owners don't really want to sell their teams. And it it got me, you know, to sort of thinking, and it's something that I've talked about with my colleague Scott Soschnick before, uh, who's one of the sports reporters here at Bloomberg, who I know you know, Sal. Uh, the, The main reasons for selling a sports team are bankruptcy, death, and divorce, it seems. And that's very different than selling a public or private company outside of the sports arena. How does that affect your job?
2: It makes it more difficult. Look, if no one's selling, what do I do, right? Well, we do a ton of valuation work. We must have done six or seven valuations for teams in the last year. We do dispute resolution when there's disputes between limited partners and general partners over what the value of their assets are. We sell limited partnership stakes in teams. We just raised around $250 million for the Cubs in LP sales, and they're going to use that money to renovate Wrigley Field and buy out the rooftops and do some other development around the building. Uh, we lend money to people who either want to refinance or, or build a building or do some other stuff. Uh, we We hustle. But yes, you're absolutely right. The problem is, if you own one of these things and you're making money, why would you want to sell it? You're going to get hit with a big capital gain. And then where do you reinvest the money? So unless you have to sell it,
0: you don't. So look I I'm thinking off the top of my head now about recent sports franchises that have come for sale and the and the buyers of those. So Steve Ballmer bought the Clippers and uh you know a few years back from that uh Mark Cuban bought the mm-hmm. Mavericks and uh you know then then on the other hand you sort of have Magic Johnson was part of the ownership group that bought the Dodgers. And then you've got the Ricketts family that buys the Cubs and the ownership group of John Henry and Tom Werner and Larry Lucchino that bought the Red Sox. My question here is Honestly, when someone is buying a franchise, is it more vanity or is it more that they want to make an investment that's going to pay off in the long run, Or is it some third characteristic?
2: When I started in the business, it was more vanity than anything else. But the asset values are very low, right? Now, if you're talking about spending a billion dollars or two billion dollars to buy something, you do a lot more research. You try to figure out, am I going to make money at doing this? Do I get a reasonable return? Now, what people consider a reasonable return today is much lower than it was 10 years ago, right? Because if you're going to get a 2% return on your fixed income portfolio and you get a 2 or 3% return on a cash on cash on a professional sports franchise, you can own it get a 2 or 3% return, have a ton of fun, and on exit, if asset values continue to grow, you can make a ton of money. So there are a number of things that go into it. I think less emotion now and more business perspective than there was before, only because the asset values are so much higher and the check you're writing is so much bigger.
0: Look, I just threw out some big personalities there. I'd have to imagine you've dealt with some characters who you know aren't the most pleasing individuals to work with. Is that fair? You know what? I have a tendency to get along with everybody.
2: I, I really do, and and sometimes I real, read very negative things about people in the press, and then I deal with them, and they're great to me. I mean, I, I love Mark Cuban. I, I get along with Mark famously. I find these people, when you talk to them about their business, the sports business, they are great. They want to talk about it. They're excited about it. I guess if you want to talk to them about whatever their base business is, maybe not so much.
0: Is there anything, I mean, you know, we, we, we've we started to seemingly see a few cracks in the sports ecosystem. ESPN is starting to lose some subscribers. More and more people seem to be canceling their cable subscriptions. Is there anything on the near term that you think could alter the trajectory of sports franchises? Or are these things pretty much slam dunk safe bets for the next 10, 15 years?
2: Boy, you know, we're talking about technology now, right? And Who knows? I mean, computing power doubles every 18 months. But this is the content, right? So you don't really care how it's distributed, whether it's on cable or over the top or over the Internet. You don't care, right? You control the content. Um, Could something happen? Yeah. Things always happen, right? Uh, Viewership could change. Uh, Younger people coming up could be less interested in sports and more interested in other things. But generally, I see this as a, a stable and growing business. I also see that in other parts of the world, the developing world and other places, sports content is very important. People love it. And as long as they do, I think it's going to be pretty clear sailing.
0: Sal Galatioto, the king of sports M&A, thank you for joining us. Very interesting conversation. You're very welcome. So that's it for this episode of Deal of the Week. Hope you enjoyed it. You can expect more Bloomberg reporters and M&A professionals who are doing deals real-time. And until then, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal and Bloomberg.com, as well as on iTunes, Google Play, or any app you use to listen to podcasts. And also remember to take a minute to rate and review the show while you're there. And follow me on Twitter at Sherman4949. See you next week.
3: We at Bloomberg are proud of our new and growing slate of original content podcasts. They include Benchmark, a jargon-free dive into the stories that drive the global economy. It's hosted by Tori Stilwell, Aki Ito, and Dan Moss. Odd Lots, hosted by Joe Weisenthal and Tracy Alloway, takes you on a not-so-random walk through hot topics in markets, finance, and economics. And each week, Bloomberg m and reporter Alex Sherman discusses market-moving news about mergers in Deal of the Week. From Washington and points in between, meantime, we showcase the intersection of politics and pop culture with Culture Caucus, hosted by John Heilman and Will Leach from Bloomberg Politics. And then there's Masters in Politics, hosted by veteran TV producers Tammy Haddad and Betsy Fisher-Martin. This biweekly podcast features extended conversations with candidates, campaign strategists, and journalists. You can find all these podcasts on the Bloomberg Terminal, Bloomberg.com, iTunes, SoundCloud, and any one of your very favorite podcast platforms.